0: even if everybody abandons us, we can't not fight because we know what the Russians will do if they take over. They will Mm -hmm. torture us and they will kill us.
1: Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, September 29th. Today, I'm joined by Julia Yaffe to talk about what would happen if some Republicans in Congress got their way and totally eliminated U.S. funding for Ukraine in their fight against Russia. It's a hypothetical, of course, but as Julia explains, the outcome would be disastrous for Ukraine. And later, Tina Wynn joins Ben Landy to break down the winners and losers of Wednesday's Republican debate in California. We'll discuss all that and much more on today's episode of Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ains. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James Unexpectedly inherits his father's estate Only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation Forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game Now available only on Netflix Happy Friday everybody welcome to the powers that be a government shutdown is looming we're recording this before Friday spoiler alert maybe maybe there's a deal by now who knows but a key hang up in these negotiations is that several house republicans want to stop sending a quote blank check to ukraine this is obviously something that's been percolating among the gop for a while now i'm joined today by Julie yafi who has more on this and what theoretically would happen if, you know, the United States just decided to pull the plug on sending money and weapons to Ukraine. Julia, welcome to the show. Hi, hello. So you called around to the foreign policy poobahs in Washington asking this question. What if <laughs> USAID to Ukraine went to zero tomorrow? Yeah. What do people say? What would happen? Would it be doomsday for Ukraine?
0: Well, people couldn't really get their heads around it. And I'll explain why later. But I just want to step back a little bit. The reason I thought about this is, you know, there's a lot of political posturing over this. But then there's also, you know, differences in how, let's say Marjorie Taylor Greene talks about Ukraine aid and how Matt Gates talks about Ukraine aid. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene says, no blank check, which could mean no more money, or it could mean more accountability or uh, less money, right? Matt Gates, however, has been pushing for zero funding, mm-hmm. like just to a complete stop. And he's introduced amendments and bills to this effect in the House that have gone nowhere. But he now holds a sword of Damocles over Kevin McCarthy's head. And you know, it just made me think, like, what would happen if Matt Gates, who seems to, you know, hold the fate of the U.S. government right now in his hands, which is just fucking nuts, what would happen, right? And so I called around, as you said, to the, you know, denizens of the blob, and <laughs> I'll start with the bad news first. Uh, the bad news is basically what everybody said was, look, if, if USAID went to zero, the Europeans would step in, but... They just don't have as much as we do. They're also Mm -hmm. not, you know, in terms of munitions, weapons, things like that. And even though they've ramped up since the start of the war in 2022, they're still behind. They don't have a unified military industrial complex the way the U.S. does. It's still 27 different countries in the EU with their own mini pentagons. And their own procurement systems etc and so not only would there be fewer weapons for ukraine it would also mean there's nobody to herd those cats right 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 now we have defense secretary general austin heading these Ramstein group meetings basically once a month of 50 something countries that commit some kind of aid military or non-military for ukraine That leadership role is super vital because, again, it's many different countries with their own interests, their own attitudes toward Russia or toward Ukraine, and getting them all to come together and getting them to contribute something to the effort takes a lot of political capital and energy and time. And without the U.S. there to do that, it's unclear how well the coalition would stick together, given some of the domestic factors at play.
1: Yeah, it's clear the U.S. has had a you know, starring role and managing European partners here. But what what, like worst case scenario and also like the psychological blow, not just the the financial resources would be immense. I mean, would totally, is it possible that Ukraine could just totally collapse or give up?
0: Well, the Russians I spoke to just out of sheer sheer curiosity seem to think Mm -hmm. so. And they think it would happen within days or weeks. But we've heard those predictions from Russia before. So, you know, and we've seen how that goes. And nobody in the U.S. that I spoke to seemed to think that the Ukrainians would ever stop fighting. Mm-hmm. Even as one person said, they I mean, they would even fight with sticks and stones if they had to. Uh, but yeah, Ukraine could collapse. And then that opens up a whole other kind of Pandora's box of possibilities, right? Does the country stay together? How much territory does Russia take for itself? what happens to the rest of Ukraine? Does it stay together as one country or does it fall apart amid bickering and finger pointing? And what happens to the Ukrainian military? Does it fall apart the way, you mm-hmm. know, the Iraqi army did? Are there paramilitary groups that spring up from the chaos? Is there ethnic strife that comes out of it? You know, one person I spoke to who knows this region really well said, and and knows knows both regions, said, you know, this would make... Yugoslavia looked tame. Mm. And that, of course, would send massive waves of refugees, of Ukrainian refugees into Europe. And we know how Europe responds to refugees. We saw that in 2015, with the empowerment of far right, xenophobic parties, and also some people speculated that this might have a downward economic effect on europe which Mm -hmm. you know it would destabilize both the politics and the economies of these countries who are all massive massive markets for u.s goods for u.s energy technology agricultural products and the worse they're doing economically the less of our stuff they can buy but you know that's kind of secondary to the fact that it would be a massive humanitarian disaster you know in a country of 40 something million people.
1: Does Ukraine ha- though have as many different ethnic groups and religions as the former Yugoslavia did? I feel like it doesn't.
0: Well, there are Hungarians, there are Romanians, uh-huh. there are Jews, there are Tatars, there are ethnic Ukrainians, there are ethnic Russians. You know, there there's a lot. And I think a lot of that has been papered over by the, the war that's been going since 2014. Uh, you know, this country that mm-hmm. had been quite split has been unified by Putin. A lot of mm-hmm. Ukrainians have told me that he basically has forged their national identity while saying that it's not a real country, ironically.
1: That's a good point. I'm also impressed with your ability to recite those various ethnic groups off the top of your head like you just did, you dork. I love it. <laughs> <Why>? so, <laughs> so just to be clear, this was a thought experiment that you conducted. Yes. Uh, you know, if the U.S. just pulled the plug, you don't think that's actually going to happen, at least in the next, like, six months to a year, do you?
0: Well, pretty much nobody I spoke to thought it was possible. And that's why I had a hard time talking to people like they couldn't, as I said, they couldn't get, quite get their heads around the thought experiment, because they couldn't em- envision this happening. Because they're, I mean, you think I'm a dork, these are all major policy dorks. <laughs> and they're like, well, what are we talking about here? Is this the presidential drawdown authority? Or is this the, you know, the classified <laughs> budget? And, um, and, and, Again, there's many, many ways to keep funding Ukraine, even if Matt Gates has his way. So first of all, even if funding went to zero tomorrow, there's still so much stuff in the pipeline from all the tens of billions of dollars that Congress has already allotted mm-hmm. and that have been spent and contracts that have been issued and production that has ramped up that that Will keep going for years that because there's so much stuff already in the pipeline. So that's good news for Ukraine. Mm-hmm. The other good news is, you know, there was a story in June that the Pentagon like found over six billion dollars in aid for Ukraine that it hadn't used,
2: mm-hmm.
0: even though before they were like we're all out, and, and then they're like wait, never mind, we found six billion. And mm-hmm. basically, what happened is they went back and they were like, wait, how are we calculating? replacement costs. So Mm -hmm. if you send a Humvee to Ukraine out of the pentagon stocks, you have to replace it, right? And they're like, well, how much does it cost to replace, you know, a lightly used Humvee? As somebody told me there's no Kelly Blue book value for that, right? (laughs) So you can kind of make it up. So basically the Pentagon accountants went back and were like, well, when we said it was, you know, it would cost this much to replace a Humvee. We should have written this much and so they kind of you know beep boop, boop 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 and then it turned out they actually had more money than they thought they did so there's mm. tricks like that then there's also things that come out of just the permanent defense budget or the intelligence budget or the classified budget you know intelligence sharing that it has been so so important for ukraine that doesn't really come out of the, what Congress allots, right? That's just mm-hmm. part of the regular intelligence budget, which is often classified. Mm-hmm. So that's if, you know, Biden's in power and we still have Matt Gates running the show in Congress. If there's a Trump administration or a Ramaswamy administration and they want to take funding down to zero, then pretty much everybody I spoke to predicted a congressional backlash and Mm -hmm. that we could see something like we saw with Katza, which was basically when Trump didn't want to sanction Russia or Russians, Congress was like, okay, shut up, Trump. And they passed their own bill imposing sanctions on various Russian entities. That was called mm. katsa And he couldn't do anything to stop it because they passed it with massive majorities. And it still is, you know, Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene, notwithstanding, it is still a massively popular position mm-hmm. on the Hill in DC. And even among Republicans. I mean, Mitch McConnell has been beating the drum for Ukraine nonstop, mm-hmm. relentlessly. There in the House, you have people like Mike McCall, who's the Republican chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. So, you know, there's a lot of Republicans who think what Gates is doing, you know, I just talked to some recently who think what Gates is doing is abominable and that we need to, you know, like their criticism of the Biden administration is that it's not doing enough to help Ukraine. So mm-hmm. as long as those people are there, even in a Trump or, or Ramaswamy administration, Ukraine could still see pretty decent levels of funding.
1: Yeah, there was a 60 Minutes piece that aired last Sunday, uh, and I, I think it was Holly Williams who was over in Ukraine. And she was walking through Kiev with <laughs> Elizabeth Warren and Lindsey Graham. And they were there both aligned that if the U.S. pulls the plug on funding, uh, it would be devastating for Ukraine. And we can't do that because it would be... Uh, a victory for Vladimir Putin. And it sounds like the foreign policy blob is just as aligned with the Senate blob on this stuff, despite what, what Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene are yeah. doing right now.
0: And not just that, though. I mean, it's also just it would be a catastrophe for Ukraine. And mm-hmm. last night I was actually speaking to some Ukrainians, and one of them was telling me that even if everybody abandons us, we can't not fight because we know what the Russians will do if they take over. They will mm-hmm. torture us and they will kill us because that's what we've seen when Ukrainians liberate cities from the Russians, right? They find torture Mm -hmm. chambers, they find mass graves, they find horrific, horrific stories. And um, Ukrainians know that basically, you know, they can die fighting or they can die in a Russian torture chamber. And obviously the latter is unacceptable to them.
1: Julia, thank you so much for your reporting on this. Uh, Even if it is just a hypothetical, thank you for covering this from all the angles as always.
0: You are so welcome.
1: When we come back, Tina Wynn is here to talk about the Republican debate. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves the gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Hey guys, it's Peter. When I'm not recording the pod, let's be honest, I'm probably snacking, I get hungry. But when I can steal some moments during the day, I do like to eat healthy and eating better is easy with factors, delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. And this is big, no cooking required. I recommend the smoothies. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus, and keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. These are 2-minute meals. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant quality meals that are ready to heat and eat wherever you are pancakes i love pancakes more than waffles more than french toast a couple of my favorites so far the red chili chicken tamale bowl and the smoky bacon and cheddar egg bites i love egg bites discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day like breakfast midday bites and more no prep no mess meals factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping cooking or cleanup needed So sign up and save, head to factormeals.com slash powers that be 50 and use code powers that be 50 to get 50% off. That's code powers that be 50 at factormeals.com slash powers that be 50 to get 50% off.
2: Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Tina Wynn. Tina, I wanted to have you on today to get an update on The DeSantis campaign, which you've been reporting on this past week, obviously DeSantis has a huge amount of ground that he's got to make up where Trump is is pulling just way above the rest of the field. DeSantis has actually been trending in the opposite direction for the last few months. He's been losing altitude. We're recording this on Thursday afternoon, the day after the last GOP debate. Do you think he did what he needed to do to sort of change the narrative around his campaign or, or even just to keep treading water?
3: absolutely not although i don't know whether it's as much of a fault of his own performance which was mid but it was just the entire venue of the debate itself it was loud and awful and everyone was screaming at each other and calling each other dumb and invoking ronald reagan in places they should not be invoking ronald reagan in he was just like kind of trying to do his best on a sinking ship At least that was the vibe I got from it. I was texting a source afterwards and we both agreed it was like people cosplaying a presidential debate that had stakes in it. Yeah, I guess I thought he did
2: fine. I thought he did okay, But, you know, he was not any more or less charismatic than he was the first time around. It was a pretty low bar. I thought he looked kind of squirrely in a number of the answers that he gave. He clearly rehearsed a lot of his lines. Like many of the candidates up there, they all had a lot of pre-canned material
3: Mm-hmm. I do think that
2: voters pick up on that kind of inauthenticity.
3: Yeah, for sure. Like One of the things I kind of noticed about DeSantis is that he had this weird habit of sandwiching like a line about a policy proposal on top of a like 40 second long anecdote about a person he'd met or a story or a, I guess what a political consultant would call a relatable anecdote that showed that he <laughs> listens to people. But the thing is, it was so consistent, like, policy prescription. Here's a story about a baby I learned who inhaled fentanyl off a carpet at an Airbnb and died. And, like, okay, go back to the policy thing.
2: Yeah, I, th- I thought all of the candidates this time around, their answers really evidenced that there had been a lot of coaching behind the scenes, which is, of course, what you need to do. But, you know, you had Vivek uh, Ramaswamy sort of apologizing for being a know-it-all. You had DeSantis sort of cutting in, not answering a question so that he could talk about, you know, um, his background as a family man. Tim Scott, you know, talking about his own personal story. I suppose the thing that was most jarring to me and this is something that you've been reporting on, is the lack of swag, as as one of your sources put it in your most recent piece. This person was saying, you know, Trump is a showman. He comes in, he has so much charisma, you know, agree or disagree with what he's saying. He knows how to entertain. DeSantis does not have that. He does not have swag. And what I thought was particularly fascinating is that if, if the true problem at the heart of the DeSantis campaign is, in fact, his personality, it does seem like nobody inside his operation is really capable of telling him that. I mean, I think we We saw some indications that he was trying a little bit harder to be more like a fully rounded person, but it's just not totally there. And I I do wonder, and you you hinted at this in your reporting recently, whether the echo chamber of yes men around him in his campaign is having real impact, that he's not breaking through in part because there is a lack of willingness to grapple with the fact that there is a personality problem. There is a charisma deficit that he needs to make up, and he's got to be doing something different.
3: Yeah, I mean... When you are a powerful governor in Tallahassee, which is a tiny, tiny little city, inside a much larger state, granted, and you are coasting off this 20 point win in 2022. My read of the situation is that he viewed that as a mandate for him to just kind of do whatever and go off of his gut. The thing is, is that he's notoriously good at Florida because he knows Florida so well. And he has taken his Florida mindset that succeeded so well for him down there and tried to apply it across the country, being combative with the press, worked well in Florida, not working in New Hampshire, being someone who's trying to do new things like announcing his campaign on Twitter. Maybe that would have worked in Florida nationwide, trying to introduce yourself to a whole bunch of new Voters who just kind of know you as the Florida guy doesn't really work as well.
2: Yeah, the the, the Make America Florida tagline did seem like it was kind of brilliant for a moment because so many people want to move to Florida. Florida is great. But I think very early on in this campaign, we did start to see sort of the limitations of that pitch. Um, And of course, we've seen DeSantis pivoting to work really hard in Iowa, particularly to speak to regional issues there, to appeal to New Hampshire voters. We, We do sort of see him moving away from that message. But, you know, he's the governor of Florida. That is what his background is. That's his CV. That's the record he's going to be running on.
3: Yeah. And this is just me kind of throwing my hands in the air going, how did you not see this aspect of it, guys? But A lot of the success and love that DeSantis has in Florida was not for his conservative policies. It wasn't for the woke stuff, which all started accumulating after he got sworn into a second term. It was how he handled COVID in that he made Florida a state that had a baseline level of normalcy. Everyone was angry. The reason people moved to Florida was because of the lack of COVID restrictions. You go down there, you can send your child to school again. You can go eat dinner in a restaurant. You're not going to have to worry about putting masks on and getting vaccines and all of this onerous testing. He did away with all that. Everyone went to Florida and just kind of lived life normally. The rest of the world has gone back to normal. What does a world where everyone is able to leave their house and takes that for granted, what does DeSantis do to differentiate himself now? Like, if this were still the height of COVID, I think he would have a much better argument to make and a much better case to present in which he can point to Florida as the shining normal place on the hill. And uh, now he particularly can't. And he's walking into places like New Hampshire and Iowa where he can't indulge in this COVID theater. And everyone's like, "Okay, we're back to normal. What now? Come on, dude."
2: Yeah, I I think that's a really shrewd point.
3: I think no one really talks about that much, and that's something I would like to talk about more.
2: No, you're 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 totally right. The, the pandemic was years ago. Now the rest of the country's moved on. You know, here in New York City, people are not wearing masks, even though there's been a little bit of a, a resurgence in the virus going around. Look, I I think you're right that that might have been a winning message in some Republican circles two years ago, but the world's a very different place now, which is in part why you see DeSantis trying to move right on a host of other issues, including abortion, which is probably not a general election winner, injecting even more vaccine skepticism into Republican politics, which I think is is toxic and may also backfire with some moderates and independents. We'll see. But, Tina, before I let you go, I, I did also want to talk about, obviously, the huge elephant in the room, which was Donald Trump who, of course, was not in the room. He he skipped the debate entirely to give a speech uh, in Michigan. To be fair to DeSantis, you're talking about how he might not be getting good advice from his campaign. I think there's a lot of Republican consultants and operatives out there who are not being totally honest with the candidates they're working with about their odds in this race. I don't think they're entirely naive about the polling either, but I thought it was a really telling moment during the debate when Dana Perino finally made this point near the end when she asked DeSantis, how do you actually plan to overcome Trump's lead? I mean, He has a truly he has what appears to be an insurmountable lead at this point. And DeSantis answered that, look, polls don't elect presidents. People elect presidents, which is like kind of a cute answer, but it's ultimately meaningless. I don't think anyone on that stage really had a good answer to that question.
3: Yeah, I mean, that would be a good point to make if the lead were any less daunting than it is. I don't think I can think of a presidential candidate who has been able to overcome a 30-something point deficit behind the frontrunner, much less someone in second place. And, yeah, I think there's just this—either it's a complete Potemkin primary process where everyone believes that, believes that the Republican Party has a chance of having some sort of intellectual diversity, political diversity, ideological diversity, 20%— of Republicans right now, I would say we we'll, would say we will never have Trump in office. We refuse. We'd rather have someone else. And then I would say the soft like 25 to 30 percent that might be on Team Vivek or D- Team DeSantis. If they see those candidates truly flailing, they won't have a hard time going back to Trump. They would like to have a candidate who's younger I guess but Trump is truly not the worst thing to ever happen to them so there's a case that DeSantis and to an extent Vivek have to make where they have to not just match Trump on the policy level but they have to match him on the messaging level the efficacy of his messaging level and as that source you mentioned put it the swag like this is a line that I can't believe made it into the piece, but it was so perfect. It was Trump is able to walk into a room and have a woman ask him to sign her tits and he'll do it. And I cannot see a world where did. That happened. And he did. He did. Yes. That is a thing that happened recently. Not even like 2016. Recently.
2: Yeah. I mean, totally. Trump has that X factor that other candidates... Don't right now. I mean, it's what's keeping him afloat, despite the fact that he's been indicted now multiple times, that he could be in this race from a prison cell before all this is over. So far, we have not seen a Republican field responding to that. They are brushing it off. They're brushing off the severity of it. They're condoning his behavior. We'll see if anything will change. We, certainly we know that Republican donors don't love it. There's been word that, you know, there's a recruitment effort underfoot to get Glenn Youngkin into this race. That's something that, <laughs> you know, Tara Palmieri has been reporting on for months now. So, you know, we could still see a, an October surprise where a new candidate gets in here. But, you know, to your point right now, this is the, the state of the race. Trump is just very far ahead. And right now it doesn't look like anything's changing.
3: Everyone else who's opposing Trump are sweet summer children. That's what I have to say.
2: (laughs) Tina, we'll have you back on soon. Probably by that time, Glenn Young can be in the race and we uh, we can talk about him, too. Thanks so much for being here.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance.